earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today. Whether you're driving right now, listening on a mobile device, or catching the podcast, friends, on the night of April 25th, 1958, a young Korean exchange student, a leader in student Christian affairs at the University of Pennsylvania, left his apartment and walked to the corner mailbox to send a letter to his parents. On his way back, he walked into the path of eleven leather-jacketed teenage boys. Without a word, they attacked him, beat him with a blackjack, a lead pipe, and the, their fists, and kicked him repeatedly. Later, the police found him dead. All Philadelphia cried out for justice, for vengeance even. The district attorney secured legal authority to try these boys as adults so that they could receive the death penalty. In the midst of this outrageous and shocking act and the ongoing investigation, a letter came from Korea that made everyone stop and think. It was signed by the murdered boy's parents, plus 20 other relatives. Contained in this letter were the following words. Our family met together and decided to petition that the most generous treatment possible within the laws of your government be given to those who committed this crime. In order to give evidence of our sincere hope contained in this petition, we have decided to save money to start a fund to be used for the religious, educational, vocational, and social guidance of these boys when they're released. We have dared to express our hope with a spirit received from the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Wow! Friends, that spirit should not be foreign to us, should it? Isn't it that spirit received from the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, that we've been talking about these last several weeks? Our series, The Path to the Passion of the Christ, is that kind of path. And I've said, this path is peppered with divine paradoxes, reversals, if you will, contrasted with the world's stereotypical thinking patterns. And friends, these divine paradoxes clamor for our attention to remind us of two important truths. First, they represent the ordinary or typical mindset of the Christ follower. And the reason why they should represent the ordinary mindset of the Christ follower is because, second, they represent the ordinary or typical mindset of the kingdom of God. Remember, friends, God's kingdom and this world's kingdom are kingdoms in conflict, mindsets in conflict. 
that Christian family in Korea certainly manifested the mindset of the kingdom of God. Now, were they crushed? Did they grieve? You bet! But the mindset of the kingdom of God motivates us to react in a non-conventional, non-typical way, one that stands out and makes people notice. Think back to that letter. It's no coincidence those Korean parents wrote, We've dared to express our hope with a spirit received from the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Now there's the passion of the Christ, friends. There's the cross of Christ showing up. I've been sharing throughout this series that one function of the cross is to put to death our suke life, that purely soulish life, and distance us from that old life and its habit patterns. Our overarching text was Jesus' words in Luke nine twenty three and 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, there's the suke word, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Friends, recall that the suke life stands for the ordinary or typical mindset of the kingdom of this world. It's the characteristic response to life's circumstances, a response dictated by humanity's lower self, the self that operates purely in the natural realm, the realm of the senses, our human feelings and emotions. And of course, the flip side of the cross is the resurrection life, Zoe life, our higher self, salvation life, if you will. Zoe infuses us with a whole new dimension for living. Friends, I believe this is what Paul meant in Romans 6, 4. As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, Zoe life. The call to Zoe life becomes the call to surrender, surrender our suke life. And this is at the heart of these divine paradoxes we have sliced out of Jesus' life and teaching ministry, a period of roughly two weeks, a period sandwiched in between the transfiguration in Matthew 17 and the triumphal entry, or our Palm Sunday, in Matthew 21. During this short period, Jesus doesn't have much time to reinforce and instill in his followers' minds the divine paradoxes of the kingdom of God, contrasting heaven's value system with the world's. Well, today's conclusion, part 4, is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And before we read the parable of the workers in the vineyard, let's quickly recap the paradoxes we've investigated so far. In part one, we saw the kingdom paradox of what constitutes greatness God's way, the path of humility. In other words, how rank in the kingdom is determined. Jesus' words in Matthew eighteen three and 4 were our key. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, we mustn't let the word converted throw us off. Jesus wasn't talking about salvation conversion. He was talking about our minds conversion. In other words, reorienting our mindset, our thinking pattern about the values that characterize God's kingdom versus the values of contemporary society. In the disciples' case, humility was a character trait respectable people fled from in that society. It was the scandalous virtue. It portrayed the lowest of society, slaves. To be humble was to be like a groveling slave. Here Jesus was attempting to teach his disciples greatness God's way. Greatness according to kingdom values. You see, friends, in God's eyes, greatness is rooted in the very trait that the world despised. How amazing it becomes, then, that after Jesus' teachings, those disciples who wrote the New Testament went on to instruct the emerging church to cultivate humility, and that it was not an option, it was now an essential under the world system, people often took the path of ascending to greatness, often through selfish ambition. But the kingdom system operates by descending into greatness through cultivating humility manifested in servanthood. In part two, we saw the kingdom paradox of reciprocity God's way. When others offend us, hurt us, or sin against us, our lesson was the path of forgiveness. And contrasting the prevailing religious culture's limits on forgiveness with the kingdom of God's principle of offering unlimited forgiveness. We looked at Matthew eighteen twenty one and 22, where well-meaning Peter pops the question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, and here's the kingdom value system articulated. I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. You see, friends, the suke life always operates with the kingdom of the world's arithmetic, earthly arithmetic, and not with the kingdom of God's arithmetic, heavenly arithmetic. Earthly arithmetic springs from the suke life, or our natural proclivities, rooted in our purely soulish nature and originating from mere human feelings and emotions. Conversely, heavenly arithmetic springs from Zoe life, as Jesus demonstrated in his response to Peter. In part three, we saw the kingdom paradox of how one enters the kingdom of heaven. In other words, salvation God's way, the path of eternal life. Again, two kingdoms clash as we're drawn into the conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler in Matthew 19:16. The key question is voiced by this rich young ruler. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? As this account unfolded, Jesus equated eternal life with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and being saved, all synonymous expressions. You see, friends, the rich young ruler had human achievements in mind. He thought he had it made. He thought that by keeping the commandments, he would ace the entrance exam for the kingdom of heaven. 
But that entrance exam included something he was not ready to hear, something that uncovered his true mindset. And here's where the divine paradox emerges. Jesus even challenged the prevailing thinking patterns occupying his disciples' minds. Remember, it was inconceivable to the Roman and Jewish mind of the day that wealth should hinder one from entering the kingdom of heaven. Wealth was viewed as a sign of God's favor. But remember, the first beatitude was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first century audience would have heard it this way. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For the first time, the poor class in that society were being told they could inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was not excluding them like their political and religious leaders were. Jesus introduced a kingdom with spiritual requirements. One must recognize one's need of a savior. You see, friends, the rich people of that day, for the most part, were blinded by wealth and thought they could buy anything, even their salvation. But they failed miserably to see their real spiritual condition before God. Oh, but we don't do that today, do we? Many in that first century culture believed that wealth was a reward from God for being good. Jesus' words must have startled his own disciples and hit them where it truly hurt. Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, part four and today's final divine paradox occurs just before Jesus and his disciples make their trek to Jerusalem, which is viewed as his triumphal entry. And this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, 1 through 16. So our final installment is generosity God's way, the path of kindness, random acts of kindness, if you will. And our subtitle is, It's Just Not Fair. But let me first point out that the last verse in chapter 19, leading into chapter 20, is significant. It's the tail end of the rich young ruler account and serves as a bridge to chapter 20, verse 1. The first word in chapter 20, verse 1 is for, which can also be translated for the fact is, alerting us to its connection to the end of chapter 19. So I think you'll appreciate this connection. I'll read 1930 as a lead-in to chapter 20, so we see how context aids our understanding. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the fact is, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, as the workday unfolds, we're told that about nine in the morning, the landowner found others and sent them into his vineyard, promising to pay them what is right. Note, not a specified salary. Then around noon and again at 3 p.m. he found still others waiting for work and sent them into his vineyard. Again about 5 p.m. he found still others standing around waiting for work, so he sent them into his vineyard. 
Here's the crux of Jesus' story, friends, and where our paradox comes in. I'll pick up the account at verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Notice, last and first. The workers who were hired about 5 p.m. came, and each received a denarius, which was promised to those who began at 6 a.m. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them received a denarius. They began to grumble against the landowner, saying, These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But the landowner answered, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Notice this parable is set in the familiar world, where day laborers are hired at sunup and paid at the end of each day. A first century reader will immediately feel at home in the world created by this story especially since it deals with harvesting grapes, one of the most important crops in ancient Israel. Notice how Jesus sets up his fourth paradox by telling people what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's informing his disciples and other followers that the kingdom's mindset will be vastly different from the prevailing way of thinking. It may also help us, as 21st century readers, to understand the typical division of the workday. It was customarily divided into three-hour increments, starting at about 6 a.m. and ending at 6 p.m. So, between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., some common hours in our Bible are the third hour, 9 a.m., the sixth hour, noon, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and the eleventh hour, 5 p.m. It's possible that Matthew chapter 20 verse 1's reference to the landowner going out early in the morning to hire workers meant he was searching for them in the marketplace. In the Greco-Roman world, the marketplace was known as the Agora, where people hung out in a common meeting place to accomplish a variety of tasks. Magistrates judged there, Children played there, philosophers argued there, and people shopped there. It's no wonder we get our English word agoraphobia here, fear of public places. In all main cities of that day, people needing work gathered at about 6 a.m., especially when harvesting grapes when they became ripe. They had to be picked promptly or the harvest would be lost. Keep in mind, friends, that only the first group the landowners sought to work for him were hired for an agreed-upon salary, a denarius. Each subsequent group was told only that they would be given whatever is right, a word that can mean just. We could even say fair. 
A denarius was worth 18 to 20 cents. It was a typical wage for day laborers. For a 12-hour day divided by 20 cents meant 1.6 cents an hour. You see, friends, families in the ancient world usually went day to day, often earning just enough money for food that day. This puts a whole new spin on the Lord's Prayer and give us this day our daily bread. If a family didn't find work, they most likely wouldn't have enough food to eat that day. This is why laborers hung around all day at the Agora, or all different hours, hoping someone would hire them even for a few hours or just one hour. And those 11th hour laborers who were still waiting at 5 p.m. expected to be paid just one twelfth of the typical denarius. That's between 1.6 and 1.7 cents. Well, the drama of this story, friends, elevates with Jesus' surprise ending, doesn't it? And here's where the divine paradox occurs, verses 10 through 15. It's kind of curious from our modern perspective that Jesus had the landowner paying the last hour workers first, isn't it? But the paradox would break down if he didn't do it that way. Jesus' goal is to show the generosity of the landowner, his kindness, by paying the last group the same amount as the first group. In so doing, the landowner was ensuring the last group's families a day's wage, for they would be equally needy for their day's food. Notice, those who worked the full day didn't see it that way. They didn't see the landowner's generosity and kindness toward the needy among them. This is why the landowner responds to the complaints of the full-day workers with, Are you envious because I am generous? Literally, this is, Is your eye evil because I am good? In Hebrew thought, the evil eye signified envy. So Jesus was saying the full-day laborers were envious of the landowner's goodness, kindness, and generosity. They just couldn't be grateful for the landowner's generosity. They were blinded by their own self-envy. You see, friends, a natural byproduct of the suke life is envy and self-centeredness. As I've mentioned, the suke life loves operating with the kingdom of this world's arithmetic. It's always about justice, equal pay for equal work. But it's a great day when we Christ followers react according to the Zoe life and operate with God's kingdom arithmetic. That's always generous, good, and kind. You see, kingdom arithmetic goes beyond what is simply required or expected. It's always about generosity and grace, which flows from loving kindness. Jesus' parable makes no economic sense, which was exactly his point. The spiritual parallel, friends, the divine paradox, is that we can't calculate the generosity and kindness of God like we calculate a day's wage. God's generosity and kindness are his gift to us. We can't work hard enough to earn it. Romans 2.4 reminds us, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Friends, how many times have the Pharisees boasted that Abraham was their father? 
They really believed they had a religious shoe into the kingdom of heaven. But we Christ followers know better, don't we? There's no religious or monetary shoe into the kingdom of heaven. Everyone must come the same way, through repentance. By those laborers blurting out to the landowner, it's just not fair. They accused Jesus, and ultimately God, of not being fair, attacking his kindness, his generosity. But God levels the playing field, doesn't he? Regardless of our social or economic status, his generosity and kindness offer us salvation by grace and not through works, so we can't boast. Every one of us is on equal footing with God, and his offer is given equally to all of us, the only stipulation being recognizing our sinfulness and our need of the Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. Generosity, God's way, friends, is recognizing God's generous and kind heart, sending his Son to die on the cross for our sins, and opening a way for us to return to him. So, friends, let us pursue the path of kindness, because this is generosity, God's way. Who knows, just as God's kindness led us to repentance and salvation, perhaps our kindness may lead someone else to repentance and salvation. Well, I see we're at the end of today's program. I hope it's been enlightening as well as challenging, and it would be my honor to be praying for you as we all seek to live out kingdom kindness and generosity God's way. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. It's listeners like you that keep a word from the word on the air. Your kind support is appreciated. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Dot com.